You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. When was the last time you changed your mind on something important? I, so I don't, I don't know if I have a good example of the last time or the most recent time I changed my mind. Uh, I can tell you like one the most the most significant. I don't even maybe. know that I don't even know that this is significant. But uh, here's what came to mind. All right, you asked the question, and here's here's what popped in. I remember when I was a college student, I had answered some telemarketing call. They said we have, we have this coupon book that'll come over and it'll save you all this money, and I was keen to save a bunch of money because I was flat broke at the time. And so this person comes over, the salesperson, and convinces me to pay all this money to buy this book of discount coupons. You know, just I just got sold. I got sold hard. And yeah. these are the things where it's like a, a coupon book where you flip through. There's a thousand pages. Yes. And they tell you you spend five hundred dollars, but it's three thousand dollars worth yes. of savings. Yeah, it's one of these you know okay. three inch thick books, and it was like you know inside this book is five thousand dollars worth of value, and we're gonna sell it to you for two hundred. Yeah, but you got to spend six thousand to get that five thousand of value. I, I would have to go get my nails done or something, you know, yeah. to save money. It was just, yeah. just garbage, and so so it was pet grooming, and you know, yeah, a bunch of stuff you didn't need, bunch of stuff I didn't need, and so I I buy it. And immediately I'm having regret. I mean, like almost immediately this person walks out the door and I'm immediately regretting. I'm like, Oh, what did I do? And it, and so I changed my mind and called this company back because I, I had read that I had this, you know, short window of time where I could bail on the decision. And, uh, and <laughs> so I just called them. They, Oh, they gave me all kinds of hell. They're like, well, don't you want to save money? And don't you, you know, all this kind of stuff. Oh, that just made me feel miserable. And but it was a it was a time right where, where I immediately decided and then had to redecide. I don't know if that was changing my mind or deciding to do something different, but it, it certainly popped out as, as significant at the All right, I'll accept that answer. <laughs> okay, good. On today's episode, we talked with our guest about redeciding. Merrick Khan joined the podcast today. She is the CEO of Select Sales Development. She's a sales and business development expert and certified emotional intelligence expert. We had a great conversation about emotional intelligence as business owners. We talked about the four R's of emotional competency, empowering our teams to decide like we would, redeciding and how it's required or else we'll never improve. And we discussed that redecision must be filtered through our own core values. Uh, so it was a very decidedly episode. Uh, I know I learned a lot from talking with Merrick. I know that you will too. As always, I'm Sanger Smith with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Hey, Merrick, welcome. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, I was thinking. The Smith men. Um, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the family. Um, I was thinking, you know who has almost no emotional intelligence? Genghis Khan. Who? Oh, yeah, my uncle, Uncle yeah. Genghis. Yeah, he really like, he, way he, he different. Y'all are totally. It's like you're not even related. No, <laughs> we mix almost. up the H's. It's I'm K A H N. He spelled it wrong. Oh, uh, okay. You know, silly me. <laughs> So, so Merritt, we, we were really interested in having you on as a, 
uh, as an emotional intelligence expert. And I wanted to get some background on exactly sort of what that means. How does, how does one become an emotionally intelligent expert? Uh, tell me more about that. Well, uh, the way you become an emotional intelligence expert is you are a complete nerd and you nerd out on human beings and all the nuances and the things that make people interesting and quirky and annoying and wonderful. Um, my path was actually, I, was a, I had a sales and sales management training company and, uh, for, since 1998. And I had these two guys in my training class. And they both sat next to each other, learned the same material from the same person in the same moment. And one of them had amazing sales results and the other one, pretty status quo. And I thought, oh, well, I can't take credit for being amazing for coaching that guy who did so well if I don't also take credit for, or responsibility rather, for the guy who didn't really do much with any of it while he learned the same thing from the same person at the same moment. And that really helped me kind of see that there's probably more to it than the things that I'm teaching them in a sales training class. There's more to it than the tactics. And I looked around, you know, what, what's the difference between these two guys? Because in my mind, everything was the same. They worked at the same company. They, they sold the same thing, same territory, same price point. They, they kind of looked alike in my mind. And I stumbled actually upon emotional intelligence. And this is a long time ago. This was back when I used to uh, speak to uh, CEO groups and say, and ask them, you know, you know, how many of you have heard of emotional intelligence and very few hands went up. And nowadays everybody kind of understands it. They've heard the terms. They don't always know what it means, but that for me was the difference. I, I studied what was it that was the foundation that we were layering good training and skills on top of? And once I understood the distinction between these two guys in my class, like one was super optimistic, but not so much, uh, not so in touch with reality, <laughs> you know, like, mm. and so somebody would say, oh yeah, yeah, we love, we love what you're saying. Like we're, we're totally going to do this, but then they didn't sign the contract and he, just kind of heard everything through his happy ears and he never really asked the tough mm. question. And so right. that's a bad recipe in sales. And they, they had some other distinctions that once I started picking up on that, I thought, Oh, that's really fascinating. Like that makes a big difference. Yeah, and that was how it started. Then I got certified. That's how you become an expert. Yeah, Sanger and I have done some hiring in the past. And when we looked at those characteristics that we wanted, one of the things that we would look for is smart, but we didn't mean intellectually, academically, we meant socially adept, uh, self-aware, and, and being able to maneuver through situations without doing stupid stuff. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, we've all been in the rooms of people who are just, you know, situationally unaware. And so one of the things we looked at was, was how does somebody interact, not just with their immediate surroundings, but interact with their own thoughts? And, and are they self-aware? The, the problem with people who lack that self-awareness is, is that they don't know it. Right. And so it's, it's really hard <laughs> to help someone become aware that this is a skill they need to build. And so my guess is that self-awareness is a, is a driving component of emotional intelligence. And, and if that's the case, how do we, maybe I'm wrong, but that's, that would be what I would suppose. 
how do we develop that skill if we are starting from a place where we're not even aware that we need to develop that skill? Yeah, that's a great question. So first, let's distinguish between self-awareness in general and emotional self-awareness. Just a little distinction. Um, emotional self-awareness is actually one of the 15 emotional intelligence attributes that we can assess for. And uh, the tool that I use is um, out of a company, developed by a company called MHS, Multi-Health Systems. They're based out of Toronto, and they really have the most scientifically validated assessment tool worldwide. And so the the slight edge distinction, self-awareness, a person could be self-aware like, oh, I'm, I'm good at this. I'm not good at that. I like this. I don't like that. Like they can have an awareness about their whole self. Emotional self-awareness is, is very specifically talking about you are aware of the emotions that you have. You are aware of the things that trigger you. You are aware of what makes you happy. It's not always the negative emotions. And you have a good sense about that. Um, the other piece of that is there's another finding called emotional expression. And that is how well do you express? Does, do, do emotions show up on your face, right? If, if you say, I actually I have a girlfriend. I, I use her as an example all the time because she, she is an emotionalist on her face and she'd be like, and, and I do comedy. And so she'll go, Oh my God, Merritt, that is the funniest joke I've ever heard. And I'm like, how, how would I know that? <laughs> oh, that sounds like me. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, that's, that's kind of reaction Sanger gets when he tells jokes. Is it really just, not yeah, that's usually how most guests react in the first 30 <laughs> seconds. You go, You're really funny, man. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, there's, there's being aware of your own emotions and then there's, your ability to express that in an appropriate way. And so that's, these are some of the nuances with emotional intelligence. And I think you're smart, you're really smart to be looking for those kinds of things when you're adding people to your team. Um, generally, an emotional intelligence assessment is really not designed as a hire or don't hire tool, but I've done this in many situations with many of my clients over the years. They're down to three candidates. Everybody looks the same. They've all had this great interview. Is there anything that could possibly give somebody the edge or anything that we could just kind of understand better how they'll fit into our, into our culture or into the team, the executive team that we have or you know, and so then we might do an emotional intelligence assessment just to see do the skill sets or the attributes that they have strengths in, are those a complement to the rest of the, the leadership team as an example? Um, so that's just a couple of ways that we might apply that. Right, right. So I, I, I just had a conversation this morning with a group and we were talking about uh, compliments to a team and looking at how do we place people on the team so that we don't have conflict, but we don't have just pure overlap in terms of the the way that we approach striving to achieve things, but that we don't have gaps in in our team where we're missing certain key characteristics. So when you when you look at your work in, in emotional intelligence, how are you using that to help people make better decisions? Oh, love this question. Um, all right. So I'm going to give you an example. I'm working right now with a national uh, organization. I don't I don't know. We know what their revenues are. It's got to be in it. It's definitely billions. 
And their leadership team is about 65 strong. And I did an emotional intelligence assessment specific for leaders for each one of them. Had Each one of them got a one-hour debrief. And we really looked at the trends of the organization, all of that. It was really fascinating to see you know, how how all of the strengths that they were clearly good at hiring for because there there were so many of their leaders were strong in problem solving and things like that. So the first thing to answer your question is you have to understand your own wiring. Uh, if you want to be more influential with others, if you want to help people make decisions, if you want to, you know, if you're a leader in an organization, the more you understand about what has influence over you, the better you are in a position to influence somebody else. And so there's outside influences, right? Like like Cialdini writes about in his book, Influence. You know, we, we know that if 10 people are walking down the street and one of them looks up at a building, we're just going to probably keep walking by. But if all 10 look up at that mm. same building, we're, we want to know what's there. That's social proof. And so there's lots of things that have influence over us. But internally, there are influencers that emanate from the inside out. And those, those emotional intelligence attributes are one of the things that has influence over our decision making and how we can help others make better decisions, because this is operating in the background underneath any decision that comes to our forefront. And I'll give you a very, a very simple example that's universal. But if I have a meeting downtown uh, my wiring, which is high optimism, low reality testing, I mentioned that combination earlier, that wiring, no matter what my situation is, is the is what's underlying the, the reason why I don't check Google Maps until I'm already in the car. <laughs> okay, that's high. That's what high optimistic people and low reality check people do. It's, you know, it affects my decision. At least you're checking it. (laughs) You know, I mean, you ever been driving with someone there halfway there and they go, okay, so uh, when do I turn? Like, yeah, I didn't get, you didn't assign me any duties. I didn't know. I I didn't know you didn't know where we were going. (laughs) Most of the time I have a, I have a vague idea of where I'm going. So I go and then I do what you just said. And I, I'll, I'll turn on the GPS after I've missed the exit is usually when that happens. Um, but that's an example. Like, how can I be more, how can I help somebody make a better decision when, if I'm in the dark about some of the things that affect my own decision making, and as simple as leaving in time for a meeting because there might be traffic, right? So that's a little, tiny, minuscule example. Now let's multiply that out for a company or a health issue or a relationship decision. Those are the big decisions that you've got to make. And if you don't understand how high optimism, low reality tests, or some of the other you know hundreds of combinations that there are could, could impact the way that you see the landscape so that you have all of the information that you need and you're looking at it objectively to make a good decision. I mean, that's that's pretty important. You got to understand where you, how you process things. Yeah, that's a great point. What do you think is preventing people from gaining a better understanding of how they process information? Well, I think, first of all, you know, we it, it's not common to 
you know, say to yourself, you know what I need? You know what I need today? Today I need to learn a little bit more about yeah. my wiring. Are there moments? Uh, so I'm going to do this assessment Are there moments in life that <laughs> act as catalysts to make people seek that out? Well, I think absolutely. I mean, for, certainly in the example I gave you with my client, because all of these individuals are in leadership roles, the company you know, asserts that, okay, we want to further develop our leaders. We want you to know your blind spots. Yeah. We want to, we're not going to leave you with that. We're going to offer you the the development options that you need to be the best leader you can be because that's good for the company. But I think, you know, as individuals, there are certainly going to be those pivotal moments in life where you you know, are a little bit stopped in your tracks and maybe you didn't get a job that you wanted or a relationship that you wanted or you're faced with a health challenge and you all of a sudden have to think, how, what is it about this decision? What, you know, who am I in the, in context with this decision? Like how, how can I feel good about a decision that I make, that I'm making? I need to feel confident in myself. I need to have high self-regard. I need to, you know, understand mm. myself to really move forward with a, a big, big decision like that. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like the more experiences that we have in life, the more, uh, you know, the more we have to draw on to make better decisions. But, you know, <laughs> You can, and we all know the, you know, doing things the same thing over and over, expecting your different result. And I mean, that's not news. That's crazy. But you, if you don't learn from your experiences to, with the intention of having them inform you so that you can make better decisions in the future, then you're doomed to repeat the same mistakes. But if you are a little bit introspective and if you have the benefit of having a slightly outside perspective a, a well-trained coach, therapist, mentor, manager, somebody to to share an an insight with a, a different vantage point. You know, that's really what helps us be who we are or be who we need to be to make decisions from a stronger standpoint. Yeah, I think that coach, mentor, uh, counselor role is so important, especially with big big choices, right? Big choices that have big consequences. In my practice as a financial advisor, whenever people come to me with a big, maybe scary choice or a very excited choice, um, usually they they have a big decision to make and they have some emotions wrapped around that decision that are going to change the trajectory of that decision-making process. And, and they may not know it. A lot of times they don't. Sometimes they do. But I'll walk them through this process um, that Doug Linick came up with called the four R's. He's the author of uh, Moral Intelligence, so almost kind of like what we're talking about, just a little bit different. And the first thing is to, to recognize, recognize the emotion that we're feeling, right? And I think that that is what most people think of as the beginning and end of emotional self-awareness. Oh, well, if I'm just aware of my emotions, I'm good, right? Now I can proceed to completely ignore them, <laughs> but I at least I'm aware, um, or I can discredit them, um, or I can be very aware of exactly how they're influencing my decision and I'm gonna do the bad thing anyway. Well, the first thing is recognize, and then the second is reflect. Okay, well, I'm feeling 
anxious about this decision. And that is coming from a place of maybe insecurity, maybe uncertainty. Where is that anxiety coming from? Maybe it's coming from something completely unrelated to this decision that's just weighing on me in, in, in this moment. And then the third is to reframe. Okay, hey, so let's take an example of you know, someone who is uh, ready to quit their job. Oh, they had a really bad week at work. They're just mad. They're, they're ticked off. They think, you know, the world, you know, is not doing them any favors. I'm going to leave this job. Okay. Well, stop. What, what am I feeling? I'm feeling upset. I'm feeling maybe more precise than upset. I'm feeling disrespected by a boss who didn't recognize, you know, my talents or didn't, you know, cheer me on enough or didn't appreciate my hard work and my accomplishment. Oh, okay. Well, that's causing me to have a bad attitude every single day and show up and isolate myself slowly amongst my coworkers. And now I feel more dejected and I feel more disrespected. So, you know, what I can do is I can reframe that and say, you know what, if I were to dedicate myself to this company that's provided me with a paycheck and roof over my head and et cetera, um, then I can accomplish good things just like I have in the past. And so then we get to the fourth R, which is respond. Um, and so maybe you still quit the job. Maybe you go, you know what? I could change my attitude. I could change how I'm feeling. Uh, even if I did, I would still want to quit, but I'm not, at least I'm not going to quit mad. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, I think the, there's a lot of value in the four R's. I love how you describe that. I'm in. Yeah. I, I think when we look at emotional intelligence in, as a framework for decision-making, it's obviously important to be able to become self-aware because that, that is a foundation for decision-making. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing people struggle with as you're doing your coaching? Is, are there certain types of decisions that are more difficult for people to overcome than, than others? It's interesting. I mean, most of my work, my, all my conversations are really specifically focused on decisions that are designed, you know, decisions in the workplace, right? So that's, you know, I'm, I'm assessing leaders, sales professionals, entrepreneurs, professionals, you know, people who are very good at what they do, you know, and that's sort of my, that's my bait. That's my, that's a world I play in. And I, sure. you know, people always ask me, well, how should I think about filling out this assessment? Do I think about it like personal or work? And I'm like, I don't know who's, who's with you always, <laughs> you know, like you, you can't really separate you. You are who you are. So we end up getting into some very personal conversations and, you know, there are, it's always fascinating, um, the things that are on people's minds, I always start my coaching session with, tell me what you're already working on. Tell me what is already on your radar screen in terms of your own personal or professional development. What's a challenge or a frustration that's on your plate right now? And that way, as we look at the results in the report, we're really mapping that onto something that's relevant. And, and that way, the, the information that they learn is not hypothetical, it's, it's real and it's right now. And so one of the things that I 
often see when particularly when people are having a harder time making decisions. And, and by the way, I should say there's an entire there's three attributes that are entirely related to what we call the decision-making composite. We don't have to talk about the fancy words and all, but problems, your ability to to uh, do pro- problem solving, your um, impulse control, your ability to assess things through an objective, realistic lens, all of those things kind are you know, kind of come into play when we think about decision-making. Also things like, you know, are you assertive in your response? Not aggressive, but if you have an idea and you you want, you can make a decision, are you, can you assert that uh, with your team as an example? Um, so... <sighs> Meaning, can you can you act on that decision that you that you're making? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Can right. you know? Can you can you say what needs to be said in an appropriate way without being a jerk about it? Right. So, you know, there's when you, when you think about, let's just look at it from a leader perspective. And I'm I'm filing through my mind as we're as we're talking about some of the recent coaching conversations I've had with leaders that I've assessed um, on emotional intelligence. And and one of the situations that came up was um, one of the leaders, one of the frustrations was that his team wasn't bringing him the, the, the uh, in their world, it was called a, pr- a proposal, right? So this, this is the VP over a department. And all of that, the leaders in that department are probably thinking, we don't want to bother John and, you know, we're going to bring him the finished proposal and then we'll see Mm. what he thinks. Whereas from John's perspective, it's way easier if the team involved him a little bit sooner in the process, there would be less to change and edit. He could develop the team a little bit better along the way. Um, he would be training them about how he would evaluate, you know, the the meat and potatoes of this proposal, and it would be better for everybody. So we talked. So we looked at his report, and he's very strong, self regard. He's assertive. He's independent. Like he he's a strong problem solver. So we know he can do it. His job as a leader is to bring everybody else up to that level to have them be able to make decisions the way that he would without him being involved, but they weren't there yet. And so he needed them to be come along for the ride, involve him earlier, and then they would get to a point where they wouldn't have to do that. And he could just, they would be more autonomous. And so it was frustrating for him based on how he was wired. We needed to, you know, he needed to work on a little bit more, uh, uh, impatience, <laughs> um, a little bit more empathy for others. Um, there were some things that weren't like directly related to the decision part, but that were important in his ability to help them uh, grow so that they could make better decisions and he would have to do that less. You'd written the book Myth Shift, which is challenging the truths that sabotage success. I, I like that title, but the, the, 
question I had for you, there's a title of a chapter, the redeciding. So I wanted to get you to talk about what you mean by redeciding and when does that come up in, in our lives? I, I work with a lot of leaders, as I've mentioned, and uh, there's a stigma about changing your mind, right? Uh, women, by the way, we're allowed to. It's our prerogative, apparently. Um, but everybody else, it's flip-flopping, it's wishy-washy, it's it's not a, seen as a strength of a leader, right? You, I mean, the the whole purpose of being a strong leader is to minimize the stress on everybody who's underneath you, who you lead, right? So that they can actually get the work done, right? We're the buffer. And and we're setting the course, you know, we're charting the course so that everybody else, you know, can follow. And if a leader is indecisive, that's weak. We we don't want to, we're not going to, you know, lay ourselves down on railroad tracks to follow a weak leader. We We want that strength and that decisiveness is a sign of strength. The challenge is that sometimes new information comes into your experience and you need to make a different decision. If you kept going on that path, it would be detrimental to everybody. And obviously, the, the best universally shared experience we have is the pandemic. Um, and I'll just, from my own ex, you know, uh, experience, one of the things that I do, so I do coaching, I do training programs, I speak at a lot of events, I, I would be the opening keynote conference speaker at a big uh, corporate event or an association meeting. And I was, you know, at that time, early 2020, my business was primarily focused in that area. And that was my business model. I'm going to, I speak at an event, people want to have more, you know, want to work a little bit more in depth, and then they'll seek me out for training. But that's usually how it went. So speaking was a great revenue stream, but it was also my best marketing strategy. Well, you know, then we all know what happened. And all of a sudden, that would have been a terrible, a terrible decision to stick with. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, if I was like, well, it's not a lot of business in the yeah. uh, conference speaking. Uh, yeah. You know, like, uh, I would be in a total argument with reality if I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to still prospect for speaking engagements. There were no speaking engagements for a year and a half, nothing. And so in that example, it would have been detrimental to my business, my livelihood, my everything if I had stuck to my original decision. Instead, I looked at the landscape, new information came into my experience, and I allowed that to inform me to make a new decision. So I redecided the course of action. Um, I redecided the not just the goal, but also the path that I would take for the rest of the year. Um, and that's, uh, you know, all of us did that, right? That's not unique to me. It's not my story. It's all of our stories. And so I, I think the the distinction between, you know, I, I didn't not I didn't not make a decision. I didn't like change yeah. my mind willy nilly. I redecided. It came from a place of power. Yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. You know, as information change, we want to make the best decision based on all the information. And as that information changes, that means the best decision might change. Right. I, I, I'm glad you distinguished that between um, having the information and sitting on our hands. That's a level of indecision that I think 
plagues us in so many areas of life where we could achieve our full potential, but instead of just going for it, we wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. And we hope that one day all of the information will clearly point us towards option A or B or C, and it, it never really does. Yeah. Make a decision, get into action because, and that's why redeciding is such a great tool, especially for leaders, because you can get in... You don't. You don't have to wallow in un- indecisiveness. Make a decision. Redecide. Get in action. You can always redecide again. And the language that you use with your team and with yourself is based on the information I had at that time that I made that decision. This was the right course of action. Since then, new information has come into my experience, and because of that, I'm going to make an adjustment in the goal or the game plan. And it's very simple and it's very direct and it gives you freedom. And when you look at it from, you know, again, that standpoint of it's not changing your mind, it's redeciding. It's very powerful. And we need to give our ourselves and our leaders more opportunity to be okay with changing the course when it makes sense. Yeah. So it seems yeah. to me like there might be a few reasons why people would be resistant to changing their mind. And and I think one is obvious, and that's pride, right? I made this choice. It was decisive. Damn it, I'm going to see it all the way through. Um, you know, I'm going to sink with the ship. And that, that you know, has one route towards a solution. But I think there is another, and that is people who are simply reluctant to change from the beginning, right? They just, di- they didn't like making the first choice. They really are not going to want to change that choice, even though the environment has changed. Um what what can those two different groups of people do to be more comfortable with with redeciding? I think you need to wa- work yourself through a series of questions to discover for yourself what the outcome is of making the new decision or or not making it at this time and just kind of going with the the status quo. My my philosophy has always been when i do that in a in a sales conversation as an example from my perspective i'm not doing anybody any favors by not asking them the tough questions they're either going to mm. feel pain if they don't deal with this challenge that's in front of them they're either going to feel pain in real life which is expensive it's difficult it could cost them their business it could cost them you know like the costs are astronomical or they're going to go through that experience in a conversation with me, which is way less detrimental in real life. And so I don't ever shy away from asking my prospective clients the tough questions that are going to help them discover whether or not it makes sense to move forward with the decision to work with me or not, right? Like, it's okay if we don't make don't work, work together, but my my role at this stage is to make sure... I'm leading you through a conversation so you you can freely select the right path for you. And that's, you know, we call our business select sales development. We spell it S-E-L-L-E-C-T. That's very deliberate because we don't want you to sell. We want you to be selected. And so it's always about asking good questions. So I think the the best advice would be ask yourself the tough questions. What happens if I don't make this decision? What happens if we just keep stay the course? What happens if I, you know, 
if I keep the goal the same, but I shift the game plan a little bit, what happened, you know, like what cost benefit, like, you know, what's the, what's the payoff if I, if I don't do this or if I do do this and you've got to go through that whole example for yourself. Yeah, I, I think there's some examples of redeciding. I, I think certainly, as Sanger was alluding to earlier, when you look in politics, it can be fairly detrimental because you've got to live with that brand that you were a flip flopper or that you went back on your word. Uh, you know, the, the one that comes to mind is George H.W. Bush, which said, uh, read my lips, no new taxes, and then went on and raised taxes and uh, fell from having a 92% approval rating down to not getting reelected the next election. And so I, I think there's some real risk when you look at redeciding that there is this opinion that, that gets tagged to you as indecisive, flip-flopping, uh, not sticking with the core. How do you, how do you make sure that you're making a, a good decision to redecide where it is appropriate? You have new tactical information uh, that is going to uh, cause you to change the plans that you had in your business plan or your decision-making versus think, just using that as an excuse and, and then really having just a mercurial approach to what you're doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, in the, in the presidential uh, example that you shared, I mean, that's, <laughs> there's a campaign promise and people are casting their vote based on, what you're saying that would that's a bad example of something to redecide <laughs> um yeah. right because that's why you got the role you got i'm talking about uh okay here you know in, in that situation let's 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 say it's let's like see. their their political principles like for example bernie sanders always gets lauded for never changing his mind on anything like he has been for the exact same things his entire career now okay you might you might think he's great. You might have some issues with it, but that alone, the fact that he has never changed and Rand Paul, just from, you know, bipartisan in this criticism, Rand Paul or Ron Paul never changed his mind over anything. They get praised by their bases as hey, you know, the thing that Ron Paul was saying in 1970, he's still saying now the thing that Bernie Sanders was saying in 1970, he's still saying now. And that to me always struck me as something that's not objectively good. No, I don't think it's objectively good. I remember when, uh, did you, you ever go through like your senior year and, and sign annuals? Did you do that? People would yeah. write in your annuals, you know, have a great summer or you know, whatever. And a lot of people would put, you know, just, you know, I hope you never change, never change. I'd look at that and I'd go, good God, I hope I do. I hope yeah. I get better. That's so rude. I hope, I hope That's I so grow. rude of you to wish that on me. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think disadvantageous. That, <laughs> I, I think it's um I think it's uh it's inaccurate to think that new information isn't gonna come across our radar screen. You know, I mean we have, there's so many examples of things that we've redecided uh that have served us. And I I mean <laughs> First of all, if we trusted our politicians, that would this would be a whole different conversation. <laughs> like there's there's a fundamental distrust there. And so that's just that's a we can just park that over on the side because that's the foundation that all of this is layering on top of. And there's so many very polarizing examples we could discuss. 
Um, and I'd be more than happy to have a beverage after work in person one day when we're not being recorded because I'm a very, very fun, like keenly aware that what I might say could uh, cause a rift. But, you know, think about a hot topic in the in current events. And at the time when decisions may have been made about a particular hot topic, uh, there was a certain amount of information available to us. And now there is considerably more information because people on both sides have dug their heels in so hard that this is the position. They are absolutely closed to any new ideas that might shift their thinking. That's without getting into details about any specific, uh, you know, issues my my purpose is to open people's minds to new possibilities um i think and, and this is a this goes back to uh some things that i i'm sure i learned from robert caldini in in his work on influence cuz i'm a huge i'm like a super fan of his work but you know there's a reason why when you are uh, why people want you to sign the clipboard and declare your affili your affiliation with a particular party and that they have you sign that that is the principle of commitment and consistency and even if the other party has ideas that you kind of like because you have declared your commitment to one party you are shooting yourself in the foot because you're absolutely closing off the part of your brain that allows you to hear another perspective. Mm. And I think that's incredibly dangerous for where we are in today's day and day and age. And I think that all I'm I'm not advocating one side or another. I'm just saying I miss the days when we could have intelligent debate and discussion. And I think that's that's a that's a big issue. So for me, um an open mind, you know, closes more deals when I'm dealing with salespeople. Like first you have to open your own mind to that there's a new possibility. Then the first thing, the first step to a closed deal, the first step to a new possibility is an open mind. So the very first thing we have to do, whether we are making a new, a new decision for ourselves or we are um, in a conversation with somebody else and we're hoping to be the one that they decide to work with or any number of decisions, the very first thing is an open mind. And I could, I could make the same case. Let's say you got a, God forbid, a, a diagnosis from a doctor and the doctor says, this is the way we treat this. Now, if you had a closed mind, you'd be like, okay, well, that's what the doctor said. I'm just going to, you know, do the thing. Or do you open your mind <clears throat> to a new possibility and think that's certainly a course of action and you are an authority figure and I do trust you and you are credible um, and I'm open to a new, another solution. I'm open to other ideas. And so it that being open allows you to look. When you look, you have more options to choose from. That gives you power in being able to redecide from a good, powerful standpoint. But if you don't, if you're not open to new ideas, new possibilities, then you're not looking for alternative solutions. And I think, you know, back circling back to politics, 
personally, my sole belief, not the necessarily the opinion of this show or anybody on this show, um, <laughs> but would be that, you know, we've stopped listening. We've stopped listening from a place of possibility. We're so It seems sure. like that's by design, yeah. though. I think that, that that might be by design with the with the two party system in our country. If I can get if I can just kind of get you to join on this one issue and then then you don't really have to think about these other issues. You don't really have to, you know, I've got some loyalty with this voter. I've got some loyalty with these constituents if I can get them to just shut everything else out. Yeah, that's it's unfortunate because you know, there's so many other issues, but you know, we're not going to solve the politics of the day, but I think just to take this back to personal or business, you know, for, for the audience is, you know, there's, there's decisions that we make for ourselves, our families, our, our companies, our clients, and just reminding ourselves to be open to new possibilities and making sure that we are keeping that channel open for our for everybody we're in communication with so that when they are making good decisions they they feel powerful in their decisions that's that's really i think the best service that we can provide is being an expert in our role we know the right questions to ask somebody so that they can make the good decisions for themselves and then you know they can make new decisions if it, if it necessary, right? Like some decisions just stick with it. Yeah. What, what redecisions do you think people struggle with the most? I mean, <laughs> I'd say, uh, certainly, you know, in, in, Gosh, there's so many. I think that's going to be very unique to each individual um, based on their own unique values. I can speak for me personally. Um, I have very strong family values, um, and it was a very difficult decision for me to make once I had new information uh, that my marriage wasn't going to work out. Um, you know, it was it was tough. It was very tough to make that decision because. I, you filter your decisions through your core values and your core values are the things that don't change whether, when things get tough. And, um, you know, when you are challenged, you know, it's easy to have a family value, you know, strong family values, um, when things are good, <laughs> right. When, when everything is working in that realm of life. But when you're you're facing challenges in that realm of life, it it shakes you a little bit. But if you are true to your core that family values mean something to you, that that's important, it makes it very difficult to redecide something that is in conflict with a a really personal core value that you have. And so I think, you know, for me, that was my example. For someone else, it, it might be, you know, one of the other core values, right? It could be whatever your value is, freedom, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, fun. I think, I think you're exactly right. I can see how that would be one of the most, to answer Sanger's question, see how that would be one of the more difficult areas upon which to redecide. If it's something that you feel like might be running against a, uh, a core value, 
uh, a religiously held belief, uh, something you were taught from, you know, as a, as a kid. I know that, you know, growing up, I was always taught, well, you know, we never quit. We don't quit. Don't don't quit. And and yet, as I've as I've gotten older, I, I still hold to that in terms of honor your commitments um, and not bail on something. But I, I think there are certain times when when it's maybe appropriate to reassess and say, well, maybe I, I didn't have full information. Uh, maybe new information has come to light. And maybe it is more appropriate for me to step out of this. Yeah, uh, well, as long as I'm not damaging somebody else, I'm not leaving them in a lurch. I want to be honorable with those re-decisions, but I, I have to, I, th- I think it's okay to give myself permission to re-decide certain things. That's exactly what I wrote in my book. It's all about permission to re-decide. I mean, think about it. If if you didn't quit anything in your whole life, I mean, if I didn't quit anything, I'd still be playing the cello, and I I did not like playing the cello. Like that was that was a that was only because I was late to orchestra class the day we got to pick our instruments. Like I never wanted to play that. But if if the motto was "Don't quit," you know, I'd be fifty two still playing the cello, and that's just not that wouldn't have been good for anybody. Um, <laughs> but you know, to your point, uh, going back to the the values. The thing that made the decision a difficult decision, so family values, you mentioned religious values, and those are some of the things that might keep somebody in a relationship that really wasn't healthy. What actually had me make that final decision was that it I recognized it was also staying married was in conflict with another value, which was, you know, fun, love, and, you know, those values weren't being met. So it was like, stick with this one thing to keep the family value. But at the same time, I would be acknowledging that I'm okay compromising on these other two important values. So I think you have to really, when you're making a very big life-changing decision, money, health, relationships, business, right? The the big, big ones, you want to reference your core values. You've got to be able to be at peace knowing that your core values are unshakable. They are who you are. It's it's what makes you you. And it's how you assess the decision in front of you through the lens of those of your commitment to those values. Um, I think that makes it a lot easier, actually, to make some of the tougher decisions. To go back to what we were talking about when we first started, is that level of self-awareness has to be there so that you know that when you are choosing to redecide, that the rationale you're using for that redecision is not is not just rationalization, but is is new information to make it to make a redecision and make a tactical mm-hmm. change, perhaps, uh, and that you're not just looking for excuses that are pretexts to. Uh, a loss of commitment or, or something like that. Hey, thank you so much for spending time with us. This is always interesting. And I'm glad that we connected. Uh, where can people find you at your? Yeah, uh, LinkedIn is a great place. Merit Khan, M E R I T K A H N. So connect with me on LinkedIn. You can go to my website, which is meritcon.com. And if you put forward slash podcast on the end of that, there's some information about some things that we offer for business, but there's always a let's talk button. So if I've said anything that sparks you and you'd like to grab a few minutes on my calendar, let's actually have a conversation. I will I will mention one other thing since you were kind enough to talk about my book. I did redecide my last name after my divorce. So 
if you do, if you go out looking for my book, Myth Shift, Challenging the Truths that Sabotage Success, it will say Merit Guest on the cover. She's dead to me, but she did write a good book. <laughs> uh, so I haven't haven't redone the cover yet, so it's still me. <laughs> not not worth reissuing. Uh, okay. Yeah, one of these days I'll get around well, to that. Well, thank you, thank you so much, Merit, and uh, we we appreciate you talking with us. Thanks for having me. So I think my my takeaway from our discussion with Merit is really around the as she was talking about redecisions, is having that open mind and being open to new possibilities and new information and, and not being afraid to redecide, but having enough self awareness to be true to yourself and knowing that that you're not just rationalizing a previous bad decision, but you are making a better decision by redeciding. Yeah, I I would agree with that. My biggest takeaway certainly was her concept of redeciding. A lot of times people talk about decisiveness in a very small box, right? We make a decision, make a quick decision, stick with it. And Perhaps making quick decisions is good as long as they're not unnecessarily hasty decisions. Sticking with a decision forever simply because that's the decision we made is certainly not always good. Thanks for listening to this episode of Decidedly. I hope you learned something. I know I did. If you thought our show was five-star worthy, please check us out on iTunes and give us a five-star review. It really helps out a lot, helps people find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. Check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Until next time, I'm Sanger Smith with Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.